You're listening to the Teak Nation Podcast, where we strive to educate, inspire, and entertain you with tips and lessons from frauders and friends of TKE. Hello, listeners. This is the Teak Nation Podcast. It is so good to have you back. My name is Alex Swenson. Donnie Aldrich is my partner in crime here. It is Monday, June 7th, 2021. And I'd say we're pretty much full speed ahead into summer at this point, wouldn't you, Don? It's a full go. Got a lot of work to get done as we prepare for the fall and ready to attack the year 3,200. It's a lot of the conversation, right? 3,200. That's the amount of initiates we need to get this year, put this fraternity back in a prime position to lead the Greek world. If everyone approaches this year with the mentality that they alone have to uh, get 3,200 initiates on their own campus, then I think we'll be in good shape. You know, not everyone's going to hit that mark, but if a couple do, we'll be looking pretty good. So just that's the mentality in your chapter, whether you are an alumnus listening to this or an undergraduate member, 3,200 initiates is the goal. And if we all collectively believe that's possible to do it on our own, then then as a group, I think we we stand a pretty good chance. The math would would agree with that statement. I mean, heck, maybe we'd end up with 3,300 if everyone tried to do 3,200 on their own. Well, if everyone pushes towards 3,200, I wouldn't be surprised if we hit 3,300. And if you're wondering, okay, we're just talking about numbers, think about the amount of experiences we're going to give those 32, 3,300 souls. That's that's the piece that matters, right? The experiences, the opportunities, the relationships, the possibility for them to reach their potential because of what this organization does for all of us. There's a lot of people that were robbed of a full year of college last year as well. So they're going to be looking to find social outlets. They're going to be looking to find ways to get involved. Uh, I personally believe that this year's sophomore recruiting will be higher than any year previously because you have a bunch of freshmen who essentially had to learn just like we're talking right now, which is on Zoom, that didn't want to join a fraternity. If it is to be believed what we've been told in many cases, nobody wanted to join fraternities this year. So uh, I would uh, I would imagine that there are a lot of individuals out there who we could go after who we might not have gone after previously. And so I think there's a huge potential, not just to get the freshmen coming into college because they were more or less robbed of a senior year of high school experience, but also to go after the sophomores and juniors who didn't have the opportunity to join a fraternity last year. I think that's accurate. I also believe that a big piece of, of this year is going to be around mindset and there can be a natural discomfort when it comes to bringing in a large class of new members, especially if your chapter size is not as significant as what it has been before. And so with with COVID and the fact that we've had some recruitment classes the last two years that haven't necessarily been what they are normally, yeah, if, if groups do well, yeah, you might have a chapter that has 25 guys that recruits 25 guys. And there can be an intimidation factor of, oh my goodness, now we've got a class that has voting power or has influence. Well, thought process should be, you're also setting the group up for long-term success and health by making it vibrant with that many folks and also have to do the same great job in terms of ensuring those are good people. So as long as that happens, 
you know, what's it matter if you have 25 guys? As long as they're 25 good guys, you know, let's get to work and ensuring that high quantity and high quality are paired together. Well, I think you bring up a good point about uh, freshman class having voting power. I think another thing that you're forgetting is that if you take too many men, you might lose your tight brotherhood in your chapter. So that's just something to maybe, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that, Donnie. I think that it's one of the great myths in the world. I think that the some of the best brotherhoods, is that a word? Some of the best behoods that I've seen around Teak Nation are from chapters with 70 plus guys because they figure it out and you have more people to be friends with. You have more people to hang out with. You have more people to engage in social activities with, to play video games with, to watch sports with. So it doesn't make any sense to me why a group would want to stay at at 17 men when they have the capacity to get to 30. Yeah, when when we the reason why I say it's it's one of the great myths and I know at times the way that it can be interpreted is just, you know, uh, whisking it away with one hand, but it's just not realistic in terms of being in an organization. Some folks think I have to know every single thing about every single person in my group. I, I that's that's not reality when it comes to every other organization you're going to be a part of most of your life. And I actually think it's healthy that you have a number of dynamic people from all different environments, and you might not know everything about them. That's okay. The, the thing you should know about them is: Are you all committed to the same values as as a as people? Are they good human beings? that want to live the values of the fraternity, that want to live our bond. That's what matters. Does it matter if you understand what their favorite flavor of ice cream is, or you know their whole life story? I don't think that that's critically important. If, if you want to learn that, that's great. Go learn it for all 70 people or 185 people if it's at USC. But whenever we have that conversation with those men at USC with that large of a chapter, you know what they tell us? Yeah, it's a phenomenally close brotherhood. I've never been to a chapter in my career that has not said they have a tight brotherhood. That's why I struggle with the aspect of, you know, the eight man group saying it and the 185 man group saying it. everybody says it. It's just like if you ask your group if they're successful, even the ones that are struggling will look you in the eye and probably tell you, yeah, we, we really think that we're successful because people set their own markers and their own definition. It's like when you ask a potential employee what separates them from everyone else and they say passion, same concept. Well, that's an internal piece, but yes, anytime in a Teak interview, and for those who have never interviewed with the fraternity, this is a great opportunity to get a little uh, behind the curtain in action. Anytime you ever ask well, what separates you from the other candidates, number one, everyone always says passion. And well, then, you, then you explain then you explain to them that you've interviewed seven other candidates that day and they all said passion. And then there becomes an instant aspect where they're trying to reconfigure in their brain what the answer they want to say is. Well, there's a lesson there about any job when you're asked, I, we didn't plan on going down the career path, but when you're asked what separates you, like pick tangible things, pick results, pick uh, metrics, you know, actual, when I look at you, I can see, okay, this person does this really well. Public speaking, for example, uh, written communication, trying to rattle things off. But uh, yeah, it's these, these, these pine, passion, energy, you know, I'm a people person, like those types of things you can't really measure. And so everyone likes to go to them because Donnie, if I tell you I'm passionate, who are you to tell me I'm not passionate because you have no, there's not a passion meter that displays on my chest that compares my passion to everyone else's. So something to think about as we're in the, uh, I think a lot of our graduating seniors have probably secured jobs and are ready to move forward in their careers, but maybe not all of them. So uh, give that some thought, how you, uh, how you answer that question, because I would almost guarantee you it's going to be asked. Another way to think about this, if again, empathizing with someone who's listening to this and saying, well, of course, 
you know, think about this, how many members of the, of your chapter or men that you've been around that were really great members that had passion, how many folks you were around that maybe diminished the group and weren't the best representatives of the fraternity that had passion? Because I've been around some folks who made some really poor decisions and weren't a great reflection that they had passion. They loved the fraternity, right? They, they were all about it. And so uh, to me, a thing that you want to be able to talk about in an interview is how do you overcome adversity? How are you organized? What are ways that you can push through to get the job done? What are ways that you do research outside of the building, whether it's personally investing in yourself, uh, whether it's growing your skill set, attending conferences, whatever that is, that you focus on the mind through meditation, wh whatever those pieces are, that's what someone in an interview wants to hear. What are the things that make you different that when things get challenging, you're going to find, you're going to find a way versus just being so passionate about the organization that does. Sometimes that means you're going to push through no matter what. Sometimes that means you just still say you love it, even if you, you turn and run whenever it gets challenging. You can be passionate about some really stupid things. So passion doesn't uh, always equal good. I'm passionate about some really stupid things. We'll probably talk about them here soon. Um, do you know my favorite flavor of ice cream? Speaking of brotherhood. I, I do not. I know you extremely well and I don't. And I know we got a number of things in the agenda, but if you're wanting to just get this out for your own. Well, it's a trick question. Well it's a trick question because my favorite flavor of ice cream is actually pistachio gelato. So I set you up for failure there. I apologize. I'm heartbroken. Let's move forward. on. All yeah. right. Uh, we do enjoy our sports here on this podcast. So we want to touch on, on sports. NBA playoffs in full swing. Pretty exciting, although a uh, bit of a dud yesterday. The, the Clippers and the Mavericks played game seven. Uh, I did not win any money on the game, although I tried. And uh, the, the Mavericks could not rally around their fearless leader, Luca to give him an opportunity to play in the second round of the playoffs. Did you watch any basketball this weekend, Donnie? I did not watch much basketball. That's all right. I, uh, I I I get into it sparingly during the playoffs, but there's something special about like a like a 3 p.m. Sunday playoff game. Things are winding down from the weekend. Maybe you're cooking dinner. You're ready to go, and so uh, we uh, we we checked in on on the on the NBA. Now we have uh, eight teams remaining. I believe the Nuggets and the Clippers are playing in a series in the West, which is a rematch of last year's semifinal in the Western Conference in the bubble and then the Jazz and the Suns, right? Or do I have that backwards? Uh, the Jazz and the Suns are the, the ones. And the Clippers play. Jazz and the Clippers right. play. Stupid. So it's not a rematch. Um, apparently, I didn't watch any basketball either. And then we have the Philadelphia, Donnie's favorite city, 76ers taking on the Atlanta Hawks, which I know uh, Donnie is much more fond of the city of Atlanta. So I can assume who you're pulling for in, in that series. And then the Brooklyn Nets, and the Milwaukee Bucks, and uh, and and that uh, game one took place. No, game one Philly series took place yesterday. I'm all turned around. Atlanta beat Philly in Philly, which was good to see. They almost blew it twice. It was tough to watch. How do you see the rest of the NBA playoffs played out now that I have so expertly laid out the bracket as it remains on paper? Yeah, I'll, I'll make it simple. I, I think that Brooklyn is going to cakewalk this thing all the way to the finals. I understand Harden is having some hamstring issues, but Durant is so dominant, and I don't see anyone in the East that uh, – can really give them much trouble. I know I mean, the Bucks have, have had a better year on Scupo has a lot of help there. Um, and so it, it could be a little more, a little closer series than I think it might be, but I also could see Brooklyn just pushing through. I do think, I do think that 
the Sixers will find a way, although I would love to see Atlanta find, yeah. you know, push, push through. Yeah. And then I, but, but I do, I think Brooklyn's going to get to the finals pretty easily out West. I think it's going to be a, a little harder slog, but after, after watching the Clippers turn this thing around and Kawhi Leonard is one of the most amazing athletes in terms of during the regular season, it's almost as if he's not even there. He, he just, he checks out of games. He sits out all the time. Right. But then when it's time, when the playoffs come, that guy goes in the phone booth, puts on his cape, and comes out. So I think the Clippers and the uh, Nets will be in the finals. And let me tell you, that's going to be a highly viewed, highly rated NBA finals if it happens because you've got the New York market against the L.A. market. So I'm sure those in the NBA circles would be pretty excited to see that. Well, not just the New York market versus the L.A. market. You have the uh, little little brother of each market playing against each other, which we'll see – how quickly Lakers fans become Clippers fans and how quickly Knicks fans become net fans for those series. Or if they just, you know, no one goes to any of the games because they are huge markets, but they're not the, you know, it's not Knicks Lakers, which uh, we are now officially have no possibility of seeing that happen. So uh, I agree with you on the nets. I do think they're going to get past Milwaukee pretty easily. As I said, I think the Sixers win, but I think it goes seven. I think Atlanta will shoot well enough to keep themselves in that series. Ultimately, though, I think Philly's just too good. Um, I think Denver's going to beat Phoenix. And I think that uh, – I think oh – man, I think the Clippers are going to beat the Jazz, too. As much as I don't want the Clippers to win because I hate Paul George. Um, but I think, that, I think the Nuggets are going to the finals. I think the, I'm planting my flag right now. They will lose to the Brooklyn Nets in five games. But I do think the Denver Nuggets are going to the NBA Finals. They are immensely talented. They don't have Jamal Murray, but I don't think they need him. Guys are hitting shots. Jokic is an absolute wizard. Let's see how it goes. I'm looking forward to it, though. Uh, NBA NBA playoffs are special, especially with fans back in the building. If you can get a, an NBA arena absolutely rocking during the playoffs, there are few things that are better than that. Well, the good news is the, the NBA playoffs go on for about six months, so we'll be yeah, able to talk about true. this five more times. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. By the time we talk next week, like four more games will have been played, so uh, it'll, it'll be a good time. Did you watch any soccer last night? I already know the answer to this question. No. I will tell you this. I did. I uh, watched the whole game, stayed up till 1230 watching U.S. men's national team play Mexico. That game was one of the craziest games that I have ever seen in my soccer watching life. And I hope, and it seemed like the vibes on Twitter were that a, a lot of people who I would not normally consider to be soccer people were watching the game because it was on, it was Sunday night, it was 9.30, right? West Coast, especially, uh, it was a 6.30 start time. There's no basketball on, there's hockey on, I think. Uh, no, uh, Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather were fighting, but that wrapped up pretty quickly. A lot of attention was turned to the pitch as they say in Denver, and that thing delivered. The, the United States won the CONCACAF Nations League. They beat Mexico three to two in extra time, uh, which is like overtime, except not exactly because it's not sudden death. You have to play two 15 minute periods. And then if no one's ahead, then it goes to penalty kicks. But uh, I had a lot of, that's, a, that's the most fun I've had watching a soccer game in quite some time, even though I was in my living room by myself at midnight. So uh, all that is to say, World Cup qualifying is coming up. I know uh, when you think about U.S. soccer, a lot of people's immediate reaction is probably they missed the last World Cup and they suck, which 
is true they did miss the last World Cup. It was true that they sucked. Uh, this team is young. It is exciting. If you're going to watch the 2022 World Cup, which no a lot of people do, soccer pops up on everyone's radar once every four years, which is fine. But if you're going to watch the 2022 World Cup, start to start to dabble a little bit. It means a little more when you're invested in the team, you're invested in the players, got a lot of really good young talent on this team. Uh, a lot of people probably know Christian Pulisic, but there's a, uh, there's a lot of other, a lot of other young studs there and uh, they're not going to win the 2022 world cup. I will plant my flag there as well, right next to the Denver nuggets flag, but they should be competitive. And then the 2026 world cup, which I'll be like 50 by then um, is in America is in, is in the United States and Canada. And that is when all these guys should be in the middle of their primes. So if everything goes according to plan, again, not saying they'll, they're going to win the world cup on American soil in five years, but you just get them, just give soccer a chance. A lot of people don't give soccer a chance. Give it a chance. You might like it. If you watch that game last night, you're hooked. You don't give any soccer input. You're going to have world no, cup I have no expertise in this area. I do not mind watching soccer. You know who My, hates soccer? TCFO Brett Widner. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't mind soccer. It's it's uh, and especially World Cup, Olympics, those types. I yeah, I can really get into it, but I struggle. I struggle with uh, you know having a, a team outside of that. You know, Premier League, all that that kind of jazz that I know you and Frederick Roscoff and a number of others get really excited about. And that's great. I think it's awesome. It's just not. It's not necessarily my speed. Yeah. See, we talked earlier about stuff that you're passionate about. That's dumb. Could be, no, it's not. It's not dumb. It's, it's not hard. dumb. Just yeah, it's not dumb at all. There's there's certain. Everybody's got different things that they get into. I just soccer's just not one of those for me. But that doesn't mean I don't respect and uh, appreciate the folks that do. That was very well stated. All right. We have a uh, pretty exciting guest planned here in just a little bit for our Ed Moy. He's going to come in and talk to us about. Uh, really the financial market right now and hopefully a way that many of us can understand specifically cryptocurrency we we're a big dogecoin podcast as everyone knows uh amc spiked last week i don't know if you saw that good thing i got out a week ago before it really took off that was pat myself on the back there but uh Finally, finally paid off for all the AMC believers. And uh, Frater Moy, 38th director of the U.S. Mint, knows a thing or two about how money works in America. And so we're looking forward to talking to him. I think this will be a, a fun, fun interview here in, uh, here in just a little bit. Ed is a, an extremely intelligent guy who's been in uh, all sorts of environments from, as you say, running U.S. Mint. He worked direct, directly for President George W. Bush in terms of personnel. So we talked a little bit about hiring questions. We could have some fun with him because he, at one point, was leading the charge of all presidential hires and appointments. So he was interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people. We could have a little fun there. Uh, he's a past grand prenist, so he's engaged with a fraternity at, at the highest level and and also done a lot of great things with his home chapter there at Land at the University of Wisconsin. So he's got tremendous stories and he's been in all sorts of all sorts of environments and done a lot of work, especially in the financial world uh, over in China as well. So someone who is, has traveled the world and seen a lot. Can't wait to spend a little more time with Frater Ed. We uh, wanted to, uh, to get this rule of three. We've talked about uh, dream jobs, so to speak, previously, but uh, in the vein of Dogecoin and cryptocurrencies and the stock market and alternative income sources, 
I'm curious, Donnie, if you would share with the listeners, what are three, uh, three jobs that you have held previously, three ways that you have made money outside of the fraternity in your life? First job was at Taco Bell. Oh, no. Yeah. Now to give a little, persp- give a little perspective, and this is going to be a pat on the back, or maybe it's just a reflection of, of the Taco Bell culture in, in uh, Western Indiana. I, I lasted for 40 days. And at that, at that point, I had another job opportunity that I moved on from, but I was only there for 40 days and I won employee of the month in, in the one month that I was there. So I don't know if that's, yeah. That, that's Is that the a real certificate high... behind you on the wall there? Oh, no, that's not the certificate oh. frame behind me. I, I actually did have it at home somewhere. It's probably in my parents' house tucked away somewhere. But uh, I went from there. I, I was lucky enough to land a job working in a warehouse and, and I had that job for most summers. Uh, throughout high school and college. And that was a great job to learn about work ethic and being around people that, you know, they, they, folks had been working in a warehouse for 25, 30, 35, 40 years, that this was their life. And they took a lot of pride in it. And they, you know, and it's a, it's a job that you're working in a building and this is, you know, a few couple decades ago. So you're working in a warehouse that is 115 degrees, just they throw the doors open, right? They just pull the doors open, open some windows in the summer to save money. And you're moving around pipe. It was for construction supplies. So pipe fittings, large things that whenever they build roads and, and also houses, you're moving water heaters. And at the end of the day, you're just a greasy, nasty, stinky mess. But it really showed the value of hard work and people who uh, are lucky enough that they get to sit in an office building. It's a whole different level versus those guys that are out grinding, you know, for hour after hour after hour, filling orders and moving, moving items. And so, and, and just helping folks to, to get along with their day. So that was a good job. And then uh, another job that I had before coming to the fraternity is working with a marketing company with the PGA tour. And so in that job, I got a little bit of travel I got to be around uh, the marketing company worked directly with Tiger Woods. So got to travel around Tiger and his prime in 2005 and, and visit some different tour sites and, and do some work on site at those events. And that was a really cool experience just to travel and see the world a little bit, but also uh, being around, you know, any type of professional athletes, right. But just to see uh, the level that these guys work and, and perform is, it was pretty inspiring. So kind of all over the map there in terms of my, three job work experience. Well, that's all right. That's what we were looking for. Uh, my three. So I got through high school working in an ice cream shop. Should be no surprise to those who know me as my love for ice cream is well documented in gelato. Uh, it's called the Ice Box in, in Cloverdale, Indiana. Also did sandwiches, soup, salads, um, but it was really the ice cream. That was our bread and butter. And that's where I really developed my passion for, uh, for frozen milk and sugar mixed together with toppings and mixing. So uh, that was that was fun. I worked uh, worked at the Icebox for three or four years um, throughout the course of high school and then my first couple of years of college. I uh, spent some time working at the Under Armour outlet at the uh, Edinburgh Outlet Mall in, uh, in Southern Indiana. So that was nice because I got some, you know, you get good discounts. Um, at that point, I was still a little on the heavier side. So none of those clothes are still in my wardrobe. But um, for a college student with very little disposable income to have a job where you could not only make money, but then also get cool clothes for cheap as a win-win. And there was a, a, a chocolate shop, a candy shop, right at like three or four storefronts down from us that had these big old chocolate chip cookies. Um, so, you know, could go hand in hand with why 
I was maybe a little heavier at that point and didn't have any money. Um, and then lastly, uh, you talk about being a hot, disgusting, sweaty mess. Uh, I did, uh, I, I have done some hay baling, not recently, but back in high school, growing up in, uh, in rural Indiana, there are a lot of farms out there and a lot of, a lot of hay that needs to be baled and stored. And so uh, you get out there in, in the middle of the summer and the, the terrible thing about uh, baling hay and, and that type of work is that you have to wear long sleeves and jeans because if you don't, you're going to get hay all over you and it's itchy and it just tears you up. So it's, you know, 85 degrees, sunny, humid, you're rocking jeans and a, a long sleeve shirt. Um, it was tough, but to your point, it was hard work. Uh, tons of credit for farmers. I know a lot of, you know, to a lot of uh, coastal elites listening to this podcast right now, you didn't even, you thought the hay probably just bailed itself. There are actually people who do it. Um, and it's, uh, it's tough. So you, uh, if you ever get a chance, I would encourage you just to see how the other half lives sometime. Give it a whirl. I know that this seems to be a public announcement that I have every single episode at this point. Can you quit insulting the listeners? Only insulting the coastal elite listeners, not the, listen, we love our coastal elite Midwest listeners. Folks like our coast, we're just giving a little perspective for our coastal elite listeners of some of the folks that operate in the Midwest. And I'm sure that they would give us a little perspective on some of the hard work that goes on with some of the coastal elites. That's right. No, I'm, I'm open to it. If you are a coastal elite and you'd like to come on this podcast and share what it's like to, 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 you know, be in New York City or Boston or Los Angeles or San Francisco, by all means, we would love to love to have you on Seattle, perhaps. Ryder Erdman could come in, share. A Here's one thing. Here's one thing I know. I want no part of the traffic that they have to navigate, how everything is a battle, right? To find a parking spot, to oh, navigate yeah. traffic, to get a reservation into a restaurant, to go in and get groceries and get home. You see folks riding the subway in New York, right? With multiple grocery bags, they're having to carry in the subway car to then walk home. It just there are challenges out there for those folks as well that I am grateful I don't have to navigate. I agree with you. You recall one time, well, no, I don't think you were with us that time. We were in San Francisco for the RLC and uh, as luck would have it, we're trying to get some ice cream after dinner. Um, and uh, there was a specific ice cream place called Swenson's, which is my last name. So I wanted to go there and just see what it was about. We drove around for like 45 minutes, could not find any street parking within probably a mile of this uh, this ice cream shop on a Thursday evening in San Francisco. So uh, I'm with you. There are certainly challenges out there um, unique to unique to the coast. We stand in solidarity with with all of our listeners. Moving forward, that was a fun segment. We'll do it again sometime. We're going to bring in Zachary Scott to share with us all of his thoughts and musings. Frater Zach. Is that a new hairstyle you're sporting there, Frater Zach? Yes, I uh, shaved the sides off a little bit and uh, trying to grow it back out after. I wasn't really a huge fan when I cut it short. So, um, yeah, I don't know about new hairstyle, but uh, I don't know. It's been around. It's a... captivating for a listening audience to be talking about hairstyles i feel like the last few podcasts it's been uh you'd rather be in the zoom with us um getting to see what 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 we're talking about Um, that's a that's a great uh donor plug you know maybe we could set a threshold a life loyalty threshold and 
and if you meet that threshold, you have the opportunity to, to join the podcast soon. Now that you could really start to build out some new friends of the podcast that way. Well, we're, uh, you don't need, you don't want too many friends, but it's nice to have more than one. So See, when it comes to recruitment, I don't think you can have enough friends. So that, that's, that's such a good segue to, to, we're too, where, we're too good at this. where we want to go. Um, question I had for you, I was thinking about this this morning. I know you've been working a lot with our, uh, our frauders at Clemson at Sigma mm-hmm. Psi. Um, so that's a campus, uh, as we know, and I've been part of the conversations, that's a campus where there's tremendous potential for growth. It's an ACC campus. A lot of students, our chapter there has struggled at different points throughout its history to really build a strong base. When you're working with a group like that, a group where there's so much growth potential, but they just haven't realized it, how are you interacting with that chapter to get them to fully grasp the level that they could be performing at and help them paint a picture for how they can get to 60, 70, 80, 100, 120 men? Yeah, I, I know we've talked about this before, but it's it's getting back to those basics. Um, you have to do the simple things right. And oftentimes it's even just talking about it, um, whether it's right, like outlining what effective recruiting groups do, right? They're talking to people in the springtime that they want to recruit for the summer and the next fall. Um, and for some groups, they've never, that like concept is so foreign to them, they've never even considered it, or they feel that it's so out of the realm of possibility, they don't even try and so it's getting to that, right? Of like, okay, we've missed the spring window. Now it's, it's like, there's, we're already almost halfway through June. And if you don't start doing some of these basic things now, you're going to end up either where you were before or in a worse situation. And so it's getting back to those basics of who are we talking to? What events are we setting up? If we're doing any summer recruitment, we have to have people though first, right? Like it doesn't matter whether you're planning for, these big, wonderful events in the summertime for the fall when main recruitment starts. If you don't have people to attend them, it doesn't matter. You could have the, the greatest and best event that you spend all this money on, and it doesn't mean anything if you, there's nobody there to fill it. So who are we talking to? How often are we talking to them? How are we talking to them, right? Are we sending DMs? Are we joining the Facebook pages? Are we um, utilizing IFC lists? Are we utilizing alumni and uh, friend referrals and those pieces, right? Are we doing all of those, those different pipelines? And then what do those conversations look like, right? Are we getting people from headquarters? Are we getting volunteers to look at our messages before we send them out? Are we kind of getting an idea of what everybody's input is into the message before just sending it? Are we talking about Teak? Probably not a good idea when we should be talking about, hey, why are you coming to this school? Like, this is awesome. I saw that you're an, a new student at Clemson like, tell me about that, that decision for you. I know this, this last year and a half has been um, insane. Tell me what made you decide that you wanted to come here um, and connect with these people, build that relationship. So again, doing the basic things right is where you have to start. And once you start to kind of get a feel for that, you start to build those, those things out and you figure out what works, what doesn't work, how we can continue to fine tune pieces. Then you're able to, to kind of go up to that next stage, right? Of like, all right, Let's send more follow-up messages to people who didn't respond back to us or um, that we kind of lost touch with. Let's reach back out to the people we talked to past spring, past fall. Um, let's start planning more events, right? We had a couple already, right? And that's when you start to kick into that next gear, but you have to be able to do the simple things effectively before you can can do anything else, right? The idea of you have to walk before you can run um, type, of, type of mentality. 
Something you mentioned that I think is one of the great myths of recruiting is that the events that you put on matter. I don't want to, I don't want to trivialize them all the way, but they should be seen as a vehicle to get people in the door, right? People don't join, most people don't join a chapter because of the types of wings they get or, you know, the, whether they uh, use frozen or fresh ground beef to make burgers at their, uh, at their pool party. That, I mean, where does, how do you interact with groups who are so hung up on their events that they refuse to break through that wall to see that they could do the, they could have the dumbest events on the planet or the coolest events on the planet. None of it matters unless you're able to have conversations and build relationships. Yeah. I mean, it's for some reason, this idea of if we spend enough money, we'll get the guys, or if we do this big grandiose thing, because I want to see it happen. Like all these other people are going to love this and want to come to it. And it's, I think it's sometimes a selfish thing. We don't even realize, right. It's like an instinct of, well, I really want this or I deserve this. And I, I, or I think the guys deserve this or whatever it is thinking more in this realm of what did the people we're trying to recruit actually want. Right. And oftentimes it's an atmosphere where they can build a relationship where they can have a conversation where they're not going to get drowned out by all these cool things going on and all the brothers just kind of focusing on that. Right. You want the brothers to focus on the new members. You want the new members to focus on the brothers and you want them all to focus on conversation um, and building a relationship. So, yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And it's uh, I think the more that you look at the conversation you're having, the atmosphere that you're providing where you can actually have a conversation that's where you start to have those more effective events. Yeah, I'm sure you have as well. I've been to uh, my share of rush events that are 25 actives, you know, sitting on couches, eating wings together, just doing what they would normally do, except they have free food in front of them. And then there's like four potential new members that are sitting in the middle talking to each other. And that, that usually does not work out real well for the chapter. Yes. Uh, pro tip um, for everyone listening out there, have your brothers um, like get together before the recruitment event. So that way you can grab dinner on campus or wherever. Um, and then maybe talk about what pieces you're going to discuss with the new members that come out to your event. You get a little brainstorming sesh going and uh, you get some of that camaraderie going. And again, especially as you come back from a long summer break, that can be a really big piece. That way you avoid the, hey, bro, I haven't seen you in forever, right? Conversation instead of talking to a new guy who has never met you before. That's a great tip. That's why you're the best friend of the Teak Nation podcast for, for knowledge like that. I appreciate we, it. Uh, we, we, we appreciate your time, Zach. We appreciate you showing off the new, uh, the new haircut. We're looking forward to maybe you know having a donor in with us next time. We'll see. I'll surprise you. I won't even tell you ahead of time. So uh can't wait we'll make it we'll make it happen i'll talk to you later adios thank you one final time to zach for joining us as always and now we are moving in as we had previously mentioned to our guest profile with past grand preetness frauder ed moy Ed, thank you for joining us here this afternoon, sir. Father Alex, thanks so much for the invitation. Always good to be spending time with uh, fellow frauders in the bond. Uh, so I really appreciate it. But I, I especially am touched by your uh, warm and generous introduction. I just want to remind you that I'm no longer the director of the Mint, so I can't give you a free sample for all the nice things you said to me. 
you got to have some lying around somewhere. I'm just, <laughs> just a box to take once you once you departed. Yeah. So uh, yes. So yeah, I do have a little supply of gold, but uh, <laughs> just casual, just a casual small supply of gold. That's right. Mine's just sitting on my wife's left finger. So that's. Uh, that's I, I know our, our uh, frauder uh, CEO uh, Donnie is uh, frequently uh, lean on me to uh, to make some extra currency and uh, and transfer it over to Teak. So unfortunately, I can't do that because I'm not there anymore. We could definitely put it to work. <laughs> that's right. Well, Ed, we, uh, as I said, we really appreciate having you on. Want to talk a little bit today, not just about you, but also um, about the the big cryptocurrency boom that's going on right now. I know that's an area that that you have a lot of expertise and something that we've touched on in a, a very non-expertise way on the podcast previously. Uh, before we get into that, I, one of the things that, as I was thinking about what we wanted to, to talk with you about, you've shared your, your Teak story, I know, multiple times. I think you've shared it on this podcast previously about how you found the fraternity, how you found TalkCab Epsilon. One story that I don't think I've heard from you is your journey from the University of Wisconsin, the Lambda chapter, to the United States Mint and, and how your professional journey progressed. And so if you could just shed a little light on what that period of your life looked like between college and, and where you ultimately ended up, I, I'd love to hear that from you. Oh, well, I'd be happy to, Frater. Uh, I think my story is similar to a lot of other people's stories in that it's not a straight line. So when I uh, was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, I graduated in 1979 with a bachelor's degree, but I had three majors, uh, international relations, political science, and, uh, and economics. Uh, the uh, first position uh, that I got after that, which I spent about 10 years with, was with a company called Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is the nation's largest uh, health insurer. And I joined their Wisconsin uh, a division. And it wasn't my first choice, but, uh, and, and the focus of that job was sales and marketing. But what I learned from that job was uh, when you're in sales, it's all about people understanding them, reading them, uh, being able to uh, figure out what they need and whether or not uh, what you have can fit that need. And so those skills of persuasion and people skills were absolutely critical, just like my time at Teak was. Uh, you know, I was the son of uh, immigrants growing up in a fairly sheltered environment. And uh, what Teak brought out in me uh, during those years was leadership. Uh, not only did I learn about leadership, but I practiced it uh, in various officer positions uh, within the fraternity and spending time with uh, other uh, Teak alumni uh, who'd been around the block a bit. And you know, so you add that on to my next experience, which uh, when I left uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, which was health insurance, healthcare financing, that really positioned me to uh, work as a political appointee under Bush 41's administration. And I uh, first ended up uh, overseeing a regulatory office that regulated all health maintenance organizations. I was a young guy at the time, 32, and that was a, quite a learning experience. But my background in TEAK and my substantive knowledge that I gained at Blue Cross Blue Shield really helped me uh, figure out how to regulate that industry in a way that it could grow without hurting people. Uh, the president was uh, pretty pleased at what I did, so he asked me to go over to the agency that oversees Medicare and Medicaid, 
which are health insurance programs for the elderly and for the poor, and implement managed care options, just like we uh, who are working have those options at work. Uh, he wanted uh, the poor and the elderly that were on government uh, insurance programs to have the same options. And so I was able to do that. Uh, when the administration ended, uh, all the political appointees resigned, and uh, I was uh, there was a cooling off period for uh, former regulators that we couldn't work in the industry that we regulated uh, for at least a year. Uh, so I was very lucky, and uh, a friend of mine connected me up with one of the largest private equity firms in healthcare services, Wells Carson Anderson and Stowe up on Wall Street. And they retained me uh, really as a deal finder for them. And for every deal that I led them to that we took a position in, I ended up being on their board of directors and helping manage that company to a very profitable exit. Uh, that then led to uh, a transition for President Bush 43. President Bush 43, as he was putting together his transition team, and as you might recall, uh, that was a troubled transition only because of the, um, of the questionable election results. And uh, so he knew that he wasn't gonna have uh, the same amount of time. As a matter of fact, he'll only have one third the amount of time to do a presidential transition. And so uh, I was recruited uh, to be one of the people on that transition to help them think about how to hit the ground running. And that ended up leading me uh, into the White House with him in a senior staff position, helping oversee an area called presidential personnel, which uh, advises the president on who you should appoint for the 4,000 most senior positions in the federal government. And then uh, that uh, led, I, I did a good job there. Uh, you know, people normally last 12 to 18 months. I served five and a half years in that position. Uh, and when I adopted my first uh, child from China, uh, I went to the president and asked that I could resign so I could raise my daughter. I, didn't, uh, I told him I didn't uh, spend all this time waiting to be a dad in order to uh, have someone else uh, raise my daughter. And he said, you know what, if you were uh, uh, placing yourself, what things would you be qualified for that were uh, open at the time that I could put you in because I would love to have you continue in my administration. And it was at that time uh, that I accepted his invitation to be nominated as the uh, 38th person to ever serve as director of the United States Mint. And uh, from that point on, uh, you know, uh, the rest is history. And where we get a little bit into the cryptocurrency is uh, uh, Bitcoin, the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper uh, came out in 2009, mint director, and the first coins were minted uh, during my first year, uh, during uh, 2010, uh, when I was a, a mint director. So I paid great attention to that as well as reached out to many of the original programmers, uh, Gavin Andreessen, um, uh, Nick Zabo, Craig Wright, uh, to learn all about this new field and how that might have some uh, public policy impact. And if I were to uh, just share one lesson about that career trajectory that might help our fellow frauders, as I said, when I first answered the question, life is seldom a straight line. It's really good to have a plan 
but also you need to be flexible to adjust that plan when opportunities present themselves. And that's what's really worked out well for me. And I think uh, the vast majority of people uh, that you talk to in my age bracket, this would seem to be a, a good life lesson to learn. Well, Moy, I know that we're going to dip into the cryptocurrency discussion. I am curious, one piece that you took on, as you, you mentioned there, is being the director of, of presidential personnel, which meant a lot of interviews, a lot of uh, you know, hiring and placing folks. I'm curious, we're at that, that critical juncture where a lot of our seniors have just graduated, and I'm guessing a number of them are, are getting into the job market. We also have a number of of alumni who listen to the podcast who are business owners, right? Or, or maybe they're managers of companies and, and involved in that process. Do you have any tips or tricks when it comes to how you go through the interview and the hiring process on, on either end? I'm curious for all of the, the many things you've done. And then the last piece to this question is if you have any unique stories, maybe they could be uh, success stories that people would want to emulate or Always, uh, we always appreciate, right, those stories where you can learn from the missteps of others. So mm-hmm. I, I just, I'm sure there's a lot of gold there you could share even in that <laughs> folks would love to, behind the curtain, right, of some of those interviews of the hundreds and hundreds that you've had. Well, uh, well, thank you, uh, Frater Donnie. And I would say uh, that's that could be a topic of a whole other podcast. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I'll try just to do the top line and give you uh, and, and, and our listeners uh, a few nuggets. Uh, first of all, if you're being interviewed, uh, the, the best advice that I can give you uh, to get prepared for an interview is be authentic. Be who you are. Uh, you know, a lot of times de- uh, uh, interviewing is like dating and you put your best foot forward and you really don't find out how that other person is until like six months into your dating relationship when, uh, when all the polish starts to wear off and you really get to see who that other person is. An employer is just the same way. Uh, you're putting on your best suit, your best behavior. You're going to say things that uh, will excite the employer to try to hire you. And in the end, the hires that work out the best are where the employer sees exactly what you bring to the table and who you are uh, just um, as transparent as possible. And you get to see whether or not that job opportunity really fits. Uh, And those types of uh, matches really last a long time. Uh, So uh, the first thing I would really encourage uh, people who are interviewing to do is be authentic. Just be yourself, be transparent. And if they don't like you for that, uh, you, that wouldn't have been a good long-term fit in any way. And what I would say to uh, those frauders who are on the other end doing the hiring, uh, think back to your fraternity days. uh, And I would also encourage our undergraduates who are listening in, think back to your fraternity days and uh, think about the whole rush process. Uh, where you're trying to figure out whether or not that person is a good fit uh, to become a, a fellow frauder. And, uh, and in, in those situations, uh, uh, you can get practice right now in the interviewing process by how you manage uh, the whole rush process. Uh, and it usually focuses on you know, um, developing certain specifications, certain specs in your mind about who you're looking for. Uh, 
you know, in, in our case, uh, some of the specs uh, have been laid out by our founders and by uh, uh, leaders of our fraternity since then. Uh, we want people to join our fraternity, not for wealth, rank, or honor, but for personal worth and character. And so how can I develop uh, questions to uh, talk to prospective uh, new members uh, that would really bring out whether or not uh, they have personal worth and character. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that would be uh, uh, my encouragement is uh, figure out what the specs are, what types of questions will give you answers to those specs, and then um, evaluate objectively according to the specs and try to leave some personal relationships uh, um, uh, uh, less of a primary uh, reason for, uh, for recruiting somebody. Uh, because you could have a really good friend that you would love to join a fraternity, uh, but they're doing it because it will look great on their resume and that's the primary thing that, that, that they're doing. Um, you know, that might not be the best fit. And, and so it's really important to objectively think through uh, uh, you know, what types of specifications a person should meet. Now, if we could say one uh, more corollary to that, the best questions that you can ask about discovering that are not theoretical questions. You know, uh, what would you do if you were confronted with this ethical situation? Uh, the best way to kind of figure out whether or not a person's character goes right down to the core is uh, under this um, theory that we had uh, when I was at the White House is the best predictor of future performance is past performance. And so instead of asking a theoretical question, like uh, what would you do uh, in this particular ethical situation? Uh, my question would more likely be, uh, tell me about an ethical situation that you were confronted with and how did you handle that? And how did that end up? And what lessons did you learn from that? That's a much different question than the theoretical question. So anyway, um, you know, that, that, that's where my initial top of mind thoughts, uh, Frater Donnie, uh, for both the interviewee and the interviewer. Are there any, any good stories of, of things that stand out from your interviewing? I guess one, one piece would be just a, a general question. Did you hold a majority of these interviews in the White House where they held in, in other government buildings? What even was the location for a number of these interviews that took place? Yep. So to answer that question, uh, the White House legally defined is bigger than just the residence that the president is in. So uh, uh, the White House has two wings, the East Wing and West Wing, where uh, senior staff are. And then it also has the old executive office building, uh, which is now called the Eisenhower Executive Office Building that's right next to it. It's the one that looks like the wedding cake that's about seven stories tall. And then there's one across the street called the new Executive Office Building. All that is known as President's Park, uh, which is uh, theoretically the White House. So uh, to answer your question, uh, we did uh, very few interviews in the living quarters of the president. Uh, we did most of our interviews in the West Wing or uh, in the executive old uh, Eisenhower Executive Office Building where I had my office. Uh, so that's where, and oh, some stories. So, you know, I can tell you um, like one story that comes to mind about uh, how not to do it. Uh, I was uh, asked to interview the, um, the son of uh, someone very important to the president. 
And when I interviewed them, uh, they kept their cell phone on. And during the interview, the cell phone rang and they answered the phone uh, while I was doing the interview with them. And the phone conversation went uh, very close to this. Hey, good to see you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm at the White House. Can you freaking believe it? Yeah, no <laughs> shit. I'm at the White House. <laughs> hey, uh, Ed, Ed, could you tell my friend that I'm actually at the White House because he doesn't believe that I'm here? So uh, needless to say, uh, that didn't leave the best impression on me. Uh, another one that uh, I did an interview, um, the candidate was extremely bright uh, on the other side, went to some of the best schools and I was, uh, as I was just starting to ask some questions, he said, yeah, yeah, um, enough about me. Uh, what I'm trying to figure out is how did you get to the White House? So I kind of explained uh, it to him. He said, no, 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 no. I'm Harvard, Harvard, meaning Harvard undergrad, Harvard graduate school. And you're just, you have an undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin. How did, how did this happen? Well, and why did the president put people like you in place? So that again was not, uh, you know, when we talk- <laughs> That didn't go well. <laughs> yes, it didn't go well. We were talking about an administration where the president really wanted people who worked well together, uh, who uh, were um, humble about their uh, great accomplishments. That, that one really didn't fit the mold. But you know, the interviews that really went well uh, for me are, uh, you, know, I, you know, and I, one of the great things about this job, if you ever have a chance to consider doing it, is that uh, when you're interviewing, say for the uh, director for the National Institutes of Health, which oversees all the biomedical research that the federal government does, I'm interviewing Nobel Prize winners. You know, so I'm, I'm not interviewing the person on the street. Uh, these are the best of the best, the most accomplished that our country uh, can put forward uh, for these different positions. And uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, meet with so many uh, qualified Americans for these huge, huge jobs. And, uh, and, and one of the things that we're looking for um, were, uh, again, people who work really well together, who's really well accomplished, etc. And one of the things that uh, would come out is uh, uh, we would ask the question, well, why do you want this job? And we were specifically looking for people that were using service language versus I language. So, so let me tell you what that difference is. The I language is, boy, I have dreamed about this ever since I was little. That's all I've been working toward, every single thing that I've been doing. And when I get in that job, here are the 15 things that I really uh, want to implement. And that should really position me well so that when I get out, uh, there'll be a number of public company boards that will, uh, that will end up hiring. So that's a very, uh, what can I get out of it uh, kind of interview. Uh, to contrast that, the best interviews that I sat in are, you know, I really never considered uh, uh, this job, but as you describe what the president wants to do, that is synonymous with my life's philosophy. And this country has done so many great things for me. Uh, and I know this job only pays me one-tenth of what I'm making now, but in order to make that impact, I want to give back. And so, yes, please, if, if the president thinks that I would be a good fit, I would be uh, uh, happy to serve. Well, you know, someone said that to me, boy, and in my mind, they're all, you know, if they're qualified, they're almost hired on the spot. 
That is, uh, I, well, I appreciate the stories. Those were uh, amusing. Um, but also I think the advice is, is fantastic as well for anyone. I mean, I think that would apply to, to any job, the, especially yeah. that service versus, versus I piece. Yeah, and Father X, that's so important because uh, at all levels, when people interview for jobs, uh, because they really want a job, uh, they're the center of that universe. And so they're going, what are the benefits, you know? And, uh, you know, can I come in late? And, uh, you know, here are the things that I want to do. Does this job help me do that? And that's particularly a lot of those questions come out of uh, the millennial and, and post-millennial uh, generation uh, has a tendency to, uh, to think in terms of how does that impact me? And what the employer wants to do is, yeah, uh, there's a certain part of the employer that says, I need to take care of my employees, but really I need that person to do a job for me. <laughs> and so uh, uh, who is ever being interviewed uh, can really benefit by saving those questions until after you know that they want you, uh, but uh, really spending time on you have this need and here's how my skill set and experiences can really deliver on what you're looking for. Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, I, I think that's it's extremely helpful. I think anyone listening can can pull something away from from what you went through there. Um, I want to want to shift a little bit and, and talk talk a little um, about the the crypto side. I know that you um, you mentioned your your origins a little bit with with Bitcoin specifically. What I I think the the most basic question that I even myself have wondered at times as I've gone through this process when someone purchases a cryptocurrency, whether it's a Bitcoin or a Dogecoin or Ethereum, or I think Tether's the new one that's coming. What are what are they getting? What is it? Because when you purchase a stock, it's it's theoretically a piece of a company. When you're purchasing a a cryptocurrency, what is it that they're actually spending their money on? Yeah, great question, Alex. I get this asked all the time, and the simplest way that I can answer that is when you are purchasing cryptocurrency, say for example a Bitcoin, you're purchasing a computer file that is on a public ledger or public accounting program. Uh, and that computer file is programmed to be unique and cannot be replicated. And then to access that file, uh, you basically need a compatible wallet for that cryptocurrency, uh, which has a public key and a private key. Um, this is like a safe deposit box. Uh, the public key, allows people to put money into your wallet or you know, ownership uh, uh, codes into your wallet. And the private key allows you to access uh, what they put in your wallet. So those are really the, uh, the two pieces. You're really purchasing a unique computer file and uh, you need to have a compatible wallet with that cryptocurrency in order to access um, uh, that computer file. I had no idea that that was the case. So uh, that's that's uh, that's extremely insightful. Um, next question then on that front, what causes these to, to gain or lose value? There's obviously, uh, if you purchased Bitcoin 10 years ago, you're probably doing pretty well. There's a host of others that seem to rise and fall daily, but what is it that drives the value of those cryptocurrencies? Yes, uh, another question that I get asked a lot and the simple answer to that question is, it is basic supply and demand. So when a lot of people want to buy Bitcoin, 
uh, uh, and the supply is limited, uh, that's going to push the price up. But when people start dumping Bitcoin and there's a lot of supply on the market and the demand goes down because people are uh, trying to sell it like crazy and lock in uh, their earnings, uh, that will reduce uh, the price of Bitcoin. Now, uh, the drivers behind that supply and demand, uh, it's worth noting, are different uh, by whether the country has stable currency or whether the country that, uh, that you own the Bitcoin in has unstable uh, currencies. So let me give you an example. Um, in a country where there is stable currencies, the United States, uh, people look at Bitcoin uh, not as a currency to buy, in, uh, to buy pizzas with, uh, but they look at it as a speculative asset. You know, how can I invest in Bitcoin at $38,000 today and will it go up to $250,000 tomorrow? And so the supply and demand is mostly driven by traders in these countries where the uh, currency like the US dollar or the Euro or the uh, British pound sterling or the Japanese yen is relatively stable. Uh, people can then view uh, cryptocurrencies as a speculative asset. But then uh, there are uh, countries where this uh, currencies are unstable. So let me give you an example, Venezuela. Venezuela, uh, they're currently experiencing 15,000% inflation a year. So, I mean, just comprehend that. Uh, uh, you know, what might cost you uh, a dollar um, uh, one day just to buy a loaf of bread will cost you $15,000 by the end of the year. Uh, so for them, owning, uh, you know, one Venezuelan real, uh, is not a good thing because the buying power of owning that uh, currency is not very strong and will degrade very fast uh, over the course of a year. And so what they want to do is they want to get their money into, into currencies that are stable. Well, Venezuela prevents them from uh, taking their money out of the country and buying you by buying US dollars or by buying euros or yens or pound sterlings. And so as a result, um, uh, uh, these people are kind of, uh, uh, you know, stuck. Yeah, but what can they buy? If they have access to the internet and a credit card, they can buy cryptocurrency. And so that is where a lot of, uh, of people uh, who have access, who have uh, technology access, have uh, taken their local currency and traded it in for Bitcoin. Because even if Bitcoin goes down by fifty percent, it is still going to be worth more money than the real is at the end of the year. And so uh, there's a lot of demand uh, for cryptocurrencies in very currency unstable countries. And then you add what's going on in the stable countries with traders and the unstable countries by the users and all that gets um, thrown into one large market dynamic uh, that people are trying to figure out. So uh, right now, for example, in the United States, uh, Bitcoin went from roughly 35,000 to $65,000 uh, because uh, of two things. One is Elon Musk, said that uh, he was going to take some of the reserves of Tesla and invest it in Bitcoin instead of just putting it in a bank account as cash. 
And number two, uh, uh, the, SE, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Future Trading Commission both came out with some guidance on how institutional investors, meaning mutual funds and that, not the individual investors, how they could invest in Bitcoin and stay within regulatory compliance. And once that happened, uh, a lot of institutions uh, got into it. And that's what pushed the price up from 35,000 to 65,000. And then what crashed it was um, uh, two things. Elon Musk came out and said, ooh, I just realized uh, that uh, Bitcoin costs a lot of energy uh, and uh, uses a lot of electricity. Uh, so does Tesla. And I don't want to get on the wrong side of environmentalists. So uh, I uh, am not uh, going to allow people to use Bitcoin uh, to purchase uh, Tesla cars. And all of a sudden, uh, Bitcoin started tanking. And then all the institutional investors uh, basically said, you know what? We made money on 30, went from 35 to 65. We're going to lock in uh, uh, that upside right now. And so they sold. And now uh, Bitcoin uh, crashed down to its uh, pre-rise level of $35,000. It's up to 38 right now. Uh, but uh, I do think uh, uh, with all the interest that's here, um, that will be going up uh, over time. My last technical question, I suppose, and, and the, you tapped into this a little bit. When it comes to mining cryptocurrency, A, what exactly does that mean? And then B, you touched on the environmental aspect of it, the energy consumption. When I think about we think about mining coal or, or oil, you, you understand the environmental aspect there. We think about mining, as you said, computer files more or less, how does how does that affect energy consumption? And um, you know, if you read certain things, you say mining Bitcoin is bad for the environment. How how exactly does that work? Even though it's all technical on a computer. Yeah. Okay. So let me answer the first part of your question, and that is, how do you mine crypto? What's mining all about? So uh, uh, let me use Bitcoin as the most common example. Uh, so Bitcoin is created by miners or computer programmers who are basically solving very complex mathematical equations that run Bitcoin's code and store its blockchain. So let me repeat that because this is a definition I commonly use to explain miners. Bitcoin's created by miners or computer programmers, uh, which are the same thing, result, uh, trying to solve complex mathematical equations that run Bitcoin's code and store its blockchain. So when a miner does that, uh, when they solve these questions, they're basically building out the infrastructure for uh, Bitcoin transactions to get processed. So each miner, when they do this, they're basically developing a node. A node is a processing center. And that coordinates right now with, uh, at least at the last count, there are 12,000 other nodes all over the world that are processing Bitcoin transactions. And what happens, uh, and here's where the complex uh, mathematical equations come in, uh, when you use Bitcoin to uh, buy a pizza, or you're selling a Bitcoin from Frauder Alex to Frauder Donnie, uh, that is a transaction. And what all these nodes do is every 10 minutes, they take a look at all the requested transactions. And what they do is verify that Frater Alex really owns the Bitcoin. 
and Frater Donny really has a wallet that it could go into. And there's no duplicates of that Bitcoin. And uh, they process all the transactions that can be verified every 10 minutes. And what happens to those transactions, to block of transactions? The new set of transactions, um, the next 10 minutes, uh, is based off of the transactions of the last 10 minutes. And so each block forms a chain. And if you were to say, oh, I really didn't mean to uh, send Donnie uh, uh, that uh, Bitcoin, and I just want to go in and change it without him knowing it, you would have to go back to those 12,000 nodes to go back to the block that your transaction happened in. And then on every single block after that, you would have to change that transaction and all the permutations of that transaction in every single block up to the present time. So in other words, uh, what is a genius about uh, Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency is that every transaction is uh, verified, it's on a public ledger. So you and I can go to that ledger and see it went from this wallet to that wallet. Uh, and that those transactions can never be changed. So what a miner gets by doing this is they're rewarded with Bitcoin as they expand the processing infrastructure for every single one of those transactions. And the way that Bitcoin was programmed uh, by its original core programmers was that there can be a maximum of 21 million Bitcoins ever mined uh, and currently there are, um, I don't know, 18.7 million that have been mined at the current price of uh, $36,000 per Bitcoin. It's uh, the current market cap, meaning the um, value of all the Bitcoin that's ever been mined is about $675 uh, uh, billion. So uh, a very, um, a very healthy amount uh, uh, that, that has been mined, but uh, there's still a lot to go. Ed, thank you for doing what I've seen you do in many other settings, which is taking something that's very complicated and working for us laymen to make sense of it. And I say that because the fraternity has been lucky to tie this back to, to talk up Epsilon. The fraternity has been lucky to have Ed step in in a number of situations, especially around strategic planning. And Ed is, is in some ways the godfather who comes in and takes very complicated issues and works through it with both the Grand Council and the professional staff. So thank you for, for doing that in this instance. I do have to ask the question that I'm sure you get many times as well for anyone above the age of 20. What is this something that you foresee is going to live on? Uh, and, and the other aspect that I'm curious to twist on this is you've known about this since 2009, 2010, obviously in your profession and studied it. Have you been consistent in your thoughts around the longevity of this or have, have your opinions evolved and grown over time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the answer to the first part of your question is I do believe that cryptocurrencies and the technologies that enable them are here to stay. Uh, one way to look at this in layman's terms is, for the most part, uh, cryptocurrency can be viewed as a private sector currency or a private sector, yeah, private sector currency that's an alternative to government's monopoly on money. And so I don't see cryptocurrency, uh, the private ones like Bitcoin and, and Tether and Litecoin and Monero and Ethereum, I don't see those eventually replacing 
uh, uh, fiat currencies like the US dollar and Euro, but I see them as healthy alternatives to people who want to either uh, uh, stay outside uh, the government system or have a balance to the government system uh, uh, that, that's really useful. Think of it almost like um, frequent flyer miles, right? Uh, it used to be back in the old days, which uh, many of our fodder or uh, younger fodders may not remember when frequent flyer miles first came out, uh, you were awarded uh, X amount of miles for every mile you flew. And then that can be redeemed for discounts on future tickets, etc. Well, today you can use those uh, frequent flyer miles to not, for not only discounts or free tickets, or upgrades, but you can use them for car rentals, discounts on your hotels, et cetera. You can even exchange them to uh, you know, where they have partnerships with uh, American Express and get American Express points. And then you can use those on Amazon. Think of cryptocurrencies as providing that type of alternative to government's uh, uh, monopoly on money. Uh, and, uh, and the growth has been in these private sector currencies. So, uh, you know, the granddaddy of them all and the most recognized is Bitcoin, but uh, Ethereum is in essence a, a Bitcoin of which you can put a smart contract onto. Uh, Litecoin, which uh, if uh, Bitcoin was the equivalent of gold, Litecoin would be the equivalent of silver. Uh, you can take a look at Tether. So one of the big concerns about uh, Bitcoin is uh, how can you use it for currency when it can drop 50% in two weeks? Well, uh, Tether and a whole bunch of others link the value of their, uh, of their cryptocurrency to uh, a reserve that they hold of uh, other countries' currencies, uh, like the US dollar. And then you have other people who are concerned that uh, the uh, public ledger for Bitcoin is too public. And that's how they got Charlie Shrem, who uh, was one of the leaders of, uh, of Silk Road, which is basically the, uh, the eBay of really bad things. And uh, through the pseudonymous um, uh, way that uh, Bitcoin records transactions, not completely anonymous like cash, but not completely transparent like a credit card transaction. Somewhere in between, uh, Monero uh, ended up being a, another private sector currency to address the uh, privacy and traceability issues. So, so um, to answer your question, Donnie, there's a lot of interest in this private sector current cryptocurrency, but uh, big uh, central banks, which are the banks that uh, that are owned by uh, um, national governments. In the United States, that's the Federal Reserve Bank. In France, that's Banque de France. In Italy, that's Banca d'Italia. Uh, in uh, England, uh, that's the Bank of England. Uh, these are the government central banks. And they have taken a look at cryptocurrencies and basically said, whoa, um, you know, we don't like private sector currencies because that takes our ability to expand and contract the money supply in order to um, uh, help shape the economy, that takes that away from us. But we do like the fact that it is uh, transparent. Um, uh, 
uh, more secure, uh, the uh, transactions are cheaper. So why don't we kind of take some of the best elements of, of these private cryptocurrencies and glom them on to our, our, our normal currencies. And so you're getting this growth of central bank digital currencies. So for example, uh, the United States is putting out a white paper. The Federal Reserve uh, Bank out of Boston is working with, uh, the, uh, with MIT to develop a concept paper on how uh, the US dollar could end up being a digital currency. And on the far end, uh, you're getting China, uh, which is the second largest economy in the world. Some argue it's uh, number one, depending on what metrics you use. China has already developed their central bank digital currency and is testing it out in four major cities with an anticipated rollout sometime next year for the entire economy. Now, China is doing it for many of the same reasons that a Western central bank would, but then uh, China is also doing it for an alternate reason. Uh, they're looking for um, more granular ways to monitor their population. Uh, and so uh, uh, one thing that would give them great insight into uh, where their citizens are thinking and who needs to be punished because of bad thinking are their spending habits. And so China's central bank uh, developing their digital uh, yuan uh, is they're really doing it to monitor and uh, manage and punish uh, their own citizens. And then the last thing I just wanted to address is uh, the technologies that power cryptocurrencies. If you take a look at, uh, for example, uh, blockchain, uh, blockchain, uh, that technology can be used for many different things. And some of the things that you've been hearing a lot about uh, are things like uh, NFTs or non-fungible tokens, uh, digital identification. Uh, one third of the world's population has no form of ID, no social security card, nothing. So it's really hard to... Um, uh, for them to purchase things, for them to join the banking system, et cetera. And we're basically condemning these people to a, a lifetime of living outside the modern economy. Supply chain and logistics uh, can be put on the blockchain so that you can tell where a product is at any moment in time. Is it on a train? Is it on a plane? Is it sitting in a warehouse? Uh, Etc. It can be used for voting. You know, this past election, uh, there was some controversy around whether or not uh, the voting process had integrity. Well, uh, there's a number of companies exploring uh, putting voting on the blockchain, uh, everybody having unique digital wallets and uh, in voting with the tokens, uh, cryptocurrency tokens that don't cost any money, but are eminently traceable to that wallet so that you know that that person actually voted and, and that vote was counted. So those are uh, many of the uh, applications that are currently being explored by using uh, cryptocurrency technologies. And so when you add this all up, the simple answer to your question is, I believe that cryptocurrencies and these technologies like blockchain are here to stay. Well, it's extremely interesting. I also think it would be helpful for our listeners and personally for me to get your your thoughts as you zoom out, we talked a little bit about hiring process jobs and cryptocurrency. What do you see as the state of the U.S. economy right now as we 
come through the pandemic, we're starting to find some semblance of normalcy. Given your decades of experience and knowing you know, how some of these companies think, as well as how the Mint and the government and, and the fact, you know, I've read recently, right, about the amount of money that's been put into the economy in the last 12, 15 months. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, and you hear, you start to hear that inflation word, which for some of us, especially someone my age, you haven't heard that much in the last couple of decades, yeah. since I was a young kid coming up where you started to worry about inflation. I'm curious what you see and think about the current economy and where we're headed in the United States. Yeah, such a perceptive uh, question, Prader Donnie. And uh, my short answer is, um, I do believe that the U.S. economy uh, will have a robust uh, bounce back, and that uh, will cause uh, multiple problems uh, like inflation and uh, increased regulation and taxes. And so, you know, bottom line is whoever you elect, that's really important for you to think through that because it is their political philosophy that um, uh, that informs the approach to uh, to economic health. And so, uh, when you take a look at the financial crisis that I lived through in two thousand seven and eight, and then the resulting Great Recession that came in after that. Uh, that was, in essence, an unnatural um, uh, occurrence. It was uh, a failure, a systemic failure in our financial system when banks took way too much risk and bought uh, risky uh, assets uh, like um, uh, like these uh, uh, mortgages uh, uh, with people who couldn't really pay them back. Uh, and... Uh, as a result, you saw a very slow growth in, in the economy uh, at the end of Bush and most of Obama. And uh, what President uh, Obama did was, uh, as a Democrat, uh, Democrats are very, uh, have a higher confidence in the ability and influence of government to, in this case, uh, to get an economy going again. And so they invested a lot of money in stimulus. And in the end, it took a long time for the economy to recover. As a matter of fact, their goal of 2% growth was seldom met during Obama's eight years. So then Trump comes in and all of a sudden he had growth double to 4%. So uh, what changed? Well, um, the Obama people would argue it took eight years to heal the economy and it's unfair that uh, Trump uh, take credit for it now. So, you know, that's one legitimate view on how the economy recovered. But then when you take a look at the Trump's uh, side, they said, you know what? Uh, uh, Obama was not solving the right problem. The right problem was uh, businesses really wanted to get going, but with all the additional regulation and all the increased taxes, uh, they were disincentivized and it was a lot harder for them to um, uh, to expand. And when Trump came in and he cut uh, corporate taxes, he cut individual income taxes, and he greatly reduced the amount of unnecessary regulation in the economy, that's when he ended up having this economy with the lowest Black unemployment, lowest uh, Hispanic unemployment, etc. So fast forward to your question. And uh, the question is, when you look at this economy, uh, and, and the crisis uh, that we're in, it came from a natural uh, source, right? Uh, it wasn't a systemic financial failure. It was a virus. And eventually viruses go away. And so uh, uh, what's happening is that virus is starting to go away. 
and the economy is bouncing back. And, uh, and what you're seeing is uh, the producer price index, which then feeds into the consumer price index. You're seeing uh, huge jumps in the cost of food, the cost of lumber, the cost of gasoline, and eventually that will roll up into uh, more aggressive inflation, probably beyond Federal Reserve's 2% target. Then you add on to uh, uh, the many of the uh, Biden economic advisors cut their teeth under the Obama years, and when they take a look at the eight years of very modest growth in the United States, uh, in retrospect, they have said, our problem wasn't too much stimulus. Our problem was not enough. And so we're just going to throw the kitchen sink at this until the economy bounces back. And if there's inflation, we can manage, You know, we'll figure out a way to manage that if that truly becomes a problem. And so what you've seen is, um, uh, under the under Bush and Obama, you saw the money supply through stimulus programs increase 10% for all 10 uh, for but you know 10 years of the financial crisis. Under uh, Biden, in uh, in a period that has been uh, in, in middle of Trump to the uh, current Biden administration, you've seen the money supply jump 26%. That's the largest jump in the U.S. money supply uh, uh, ever in our history. So uh, when you take a look at the trillions uh, of dollars uh, uh, that are in uh, you know, $21 trillion, I think, currently in circulation, that is not only the highest amount, but it's the biggest increase. So why don't we have inflation today? Well, um, the standard theory that explains this is the quantitative theory of money. And it basically says in order to have inflation, you need to have way too much money chasing um, way too few goods that are really in demand. And so right now, uh, because of the uh, economic uh, lockdowns, there hasn't been a lot of demand. But as uh, the states come out of their lockdowns, demand is skyrocketing to almost pre-COVID levels, and that's causing inflation. And there's the fear that there's going to be a slingshot that will go way past that demand because there's so much pent-up demand, and that will really uh, uh, increase inflation to 4 6 maybe even 8%. And the uh, uh, Federal Reserve uh, Chairman Powell uh, came out the other day saying, we think, we don't think it'll be that high, but we do think we might overshoot this. But uh, after the initial um, uh, satisfying of all that pent up demand, things will calm down and that won't be a big problem for us. There are other people that say, uh, that demand, uh, if the economy continues to grow, is not gonna shrink back and that will cause a big problem. Who knows, but we're gonna find out in the next 18 months. Brother Moy, I can confidently say that this podcast interview has covered uh, three times as much ground as any other interview we've done. So uh, I, I appreciate that. We have uh, just nailed a, a litany of topics. Um, one thing we've not touched on, which is this, the Teak Nation podcast favorite cryptocurrency is Dogecoin. Uh, I'm, you know, we've got to take a ton of time on it. But as a proud yeah. owner of Doge, you know where? Uh, how, how are we feeling about that? Is it time to get out? It, you know, do we do we hold? I just this is more for me than it is for yeah. the listeners. But uh, just want to yeah. Doge. It's it's due time. 
So, uh, uh, you know, so this is one person's opinion. This does not constitute no, not any public go investment I know where advice. This is going. So have all those, all those qualifiers to it. You know, you have to take a look at uh, why Dogecoin was created. Uh, so Bitcoin was created to be basically a currency that is decentralized, so away from the government, uh, and, um, and, and can flow securely over the internet. So that was the reason why that was created. Dogecoin was really created as a joke. Uh, the, the founder of Dogecoin basically uh, uh, did it uh, really as a way to kind of poke fun at the whole cryptocurrency movement. And so Dogecoin does not have a utility like uh, Bitcoin does. You know, so Bitcoin's ultimate utility is as a currency, right now it might be a store of value or a speculative asset, but um, it does have a purpose. Uh, when you take a look at Ethereum, Ethereum has a purpose of being a cryptocurrency that you can attach smart contracts onto. You know, just to give you an example of what a smart contract is, we talked a little bit about NFTs. So NFTs, you know, so what's the difference between, you know, a, uh, a, a picture of Hello Kitty that sells for $69 million and my daughter who draws the picture, or you can take a picture of that $69 million Hello Kitty um, and, and, uh, and try to sell it. Well, because of the, um, of the computer file that is unique and can't be duplicated, you will always know which one is the original and everything else is just a copy. And because you know the original, um, that has a lot of value. But here's the problem, when an artist uh, sells a painting, uh, they may do well off of it, but when uh, that painting gets sold to another collector at triple the price, they don't get anything out of that. With Ethereum, you can put a smart contract in so that every time it changes ownership, the artist gets 10%, right? So that's a smart contract. Dogecoin has no smart contract. And so uh, Dogecoin truly is a speculative asset uh, driven up by hype, uh, just like uh, GameStop, uh, you know, was by a bunch of traders just kind of focusing and saying, can we manipulate that price? And so, uh, as, as you know, Dogecoin reached a high and then there were a whole bunch of people that sold out. Um, uh, you know, so stay in Dogecoin if you want to make uh, a bet. Uh, but uh, don't look at Dogecoin as being the equivalent of buying a share in General Electric. So Ed is always extremely graceful and diplomatic, but that's the kindest way I've ever heard someone say run. So that's uh, that's something for you to think about there, no, Al. No, no, no. He said, if yeah, I if you want to take a bet, bet, if I want to make, and right. you know, I love making bets. So that here's here's actually, what else Ed, Ed knows. Ed knows that you work for the fraternity and <laughs> the type of income that that uh, folks are making. So yeah. he's also trying to give you some free some free financial advice. I, I had a real bad feeling. That's how that conversation. <laughs> Ed, Ed, we uh, we cannot thank you enough for your time. I want to, something we always like to do in closing is to give our guests a chance if there's anything that they want to share with the fraternity. And obviously you've had a number of platforms and still serving as a past grand prix and still have a lot of influence in the organization, a lot of influence on, on me and my life. Curious if there's any messages that you want to share with the fraternity either in this space or, or any space coming out of COVID as we get ready to attack the fall and, and really push the fraternity forward. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks, Father Donnie. Uh, yeah, and, and, and there's one thing um, that I've been doing a lot of thinking of. 
even in my short lifetime, uh, I have seen a huge amount of polarization uh, emerge in our country. And um, when I look at that uh, and the rise of China um, uh, as the contrast, uh, I go, you know, our country has some issues that we need to deal with. And uh, when I think of the, the type of people that can be bridges uh, to pull our country back together and unify, uh, it is the DNA that makes us uh, fathers in the bond. Uh, love, charity, and esteem, and how we should treat each other. And so uh, my, uh, my encouragement to uh, all those who might listen to this podcast is really think through the values of our fraternity, how we're supposed to treat each other, because if we can't treat each other any better than the polarization that's going on outside, uh, we have nothing to offer this culture. Uh, but if we live up to our values, as the way our founders have outlined, we can have a tremendous impact uh, on this nation. And I really do think that because of the divisiveness, this is the time uh, for TEKS, both undergraduates and alums, uh, to rise up and be that glue that helps uh, reunify uh, our country and make it strong. And uh, so, uh, so given that, uh, I reflect back on my own experience way back at Lambda from uh, 1975 to 1979, with the leadership that it's taught me, the values that it's given to me, and how that has served um, well in my career, uh, all the way through a Mint Director and beyond. Uh, I can only say one thing, and as I'm really thankful uh, to Talk Epsilon uh, for everything it's done for me, and, and I uh, want our fraternity and my own actions to pay back uh, all that it's done uh, by making this a much better world uh, for us to live in. So Frauders, I love the fraternity. Well, thank you, Frater Ed. Um, I think those are perfect words to, to end on. We cannot thank you enough for your time, for your wisdom, for your knowledge. Uh, for your Dogecoin advice, just for, for all of it. Um, we, we really appreciate it. And we will, uh, no shortage of, uh, of content if we want to do this again sometime, I would say. Yeah, I'm happy to be on if, if you're willing to tolerate me again. Oh, that is, that is the, the, the last thing that I would say while we're doing. This has been, uh, it's been fantastic. So we appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having It's great to spend time with you. And we know that uh, Frater Ed is a very, very busy man and certainly appreciate his time and hopping on the Teague Nation podcast, share a little bit of wisdom. It's always good when you can talk to somebody who worked directly with multiple former presidents of the United States of America. We actually have a few of those guys in the fraternity. We'll have to have to snag some more of them. Absolutely. The, the last month or so of guests, I'm really proud of, of the type of folks we've been able to bring on. And frankly, just for us to get out of the way and let them speak and share a lot of great insights and a lot of great perspectives and can't can't wait to get even more successful, thoughtful folks on the podcast. So if you have any of those folks, listeners out there, please forward, send an email to Alex or I. We'd love to check out what sort of folks you might be in touch with and highlight them and profile them 
on the Teak Nation podcast. Well, speak, speaking of guests, Frater Andrew made it to the summit of Mount Everest. We should mention that. I think last week we we're still a little unsure. Um, he actually made it up there at uh, the end of May. I can't remember the exact date. Um, I think cell phone service is a little spotty up at the top of Everest. So he wasn't able to post about it and share on Instagram until a few days later. Uh, but he's home now. He's he's made it back. He uh, hit his seven summits, accomplished his goals. So I will definitely be reaching out to him to get him back on because I want to hear, you know, I want to hear what it's like up there. I've never been to the top of Mount Everest. So I'd like to get that perspective. Never even been to the bottom of Mount Everest. It was an amazing, amazing accomplishment. He deserves all the kudos and congratulations in the world i'm sure he i can't even imagine that feeling of standing on top of the world yeah if you uh if you follow him on instagram or, or even follow teak we reposted um man he was just decked out with like oxygen masks and uh the the amount of just gear you have to wear to climb that mountain probably i would assume we'll ask him 30 40 50 pounds worth just to protect your body and then to still to to do that and and get to the top um, I know he shared on Instagram, he took his mask off and breathed in some of the air for a very short period of time, which, which would be pretty cool. But um, yeah, congratulations for our Andrew. Looking forward to having you on again soon. All right. Anything else? Not for today. Let's go get to work, along. folks. Let's get All right. To work. All right. Well, before you depart here, make sure you go and smash the like button. Make sure that you subscribe. Make sure text someone right now and tell them about the Teak Nation podcast. Tell them about all the wisdom that's been shared on this episode and all of our episodes um, and tell him that Frater Ed will, will get him set up with the, the cryptocurrencies. You know, he's got all the answers. So um, thank you for listening. Uh, I did not mean to insult anyone personally. If you took any of that personally, I apologize. That's my favorite type of apology. Not I'm sorry for what I said, but I'm sorry if what I said offended you. So we're going to stick with that. And, uh, and we'll talk to you next time. If you choose to return, we're looking forward to having you back. We'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye.